ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us in this latest episode of Chaser Takeaway um, in-depth discussions with an expert on a country or an issue of concern for British Army and Defence. Obviously, these are discussions between two academics and individuals. They do not reflect the views of the British Army or Minister of Defence. And we are reflecting on Mali today, a country with a fascinating history and a history of suffering and a lot of um, conflicts and a lot of coup attempts. In the 60s, it achieved independence from French rule, um, saw an era of autocratic regime to achieve some development towards democracy in early 90s, then it lapsed back onto issues in 2000s and with the takeover of Libya in 2011 and the subsequent uprising in the north, we have seen a lot of um, suffering in the country. At the moment, um, we have the conflict in the north with the separatist of Tuareg um, structure, as well as international terror organizations and Islamist networks, as well as ethnic and settler versus pastoralists versus indigenous tensions we see across the Sahel in the middle um, with a lot of political and social questions. So it is really important for our personnel who are deploying there to get a sense of the context that they're stepping into. And we are thrilled to have a leading expert on the country today to unpack some of these things. And Professor Anne Wing has written books on the country and a lot of studies and reports um, on it for a very long time. And, and Dr. Wing, thank you so much for um, accepting to join this. Um, I'm just going to really give you the first question, which is pretty much asking you to provide us with an overall snapshot of where things are in Mali, politically, economically, socially. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and I'm uh, happy to, to see what I can contribute to this. Um, in terms of the country, economically, politically, socially, as you mentioned, um, it, it really, for a period of time, I'll say starting in uh, the early 90s, it was recognized as a democracy. So it actually was holding elections and there was a lot of enthusiasm around the political structure. Um, then fast forward to 2012, where there's a coup and um, President Atete, President Tory is overthrown. What happens, how, does, how can the country possibly have sped so quickly to that point? Um, the first thing to say is that the political regime is incredibly fragile. D democracy was always very fragile. Uh, vote buying is widespread. Uh, voter rolls were never really complete. Um, there started to be an alienation of much of the population from the political elite. And that finally reached a breaking point where the military that led the coup, the coup in 2012 felt as though they actually, this was a popular idea. Um, and uh, because the presidential elections were about to happen in that very same month that the, uh, the coup took place. And people just thought the election would be same old, same old. So that was part of the reason for this coup that happened in 2012. Um, there were a lot of grievances in Northern Mali because of the, um, the Tuareg uprising and the fact that the military itself felt very unsupported and the families of the military felt like they weren't getting the real information about what was going on in the violence in the North. Um, and so all of that led to what happened in 2012. Um, since that time, there have been elections. Um, 
but the elections again have all of these same problems with the added um, contribution to polls being closed because of the threat of violence at polling places. So a lot of the country couldn't even go to the polls. Um, they just had legislative elections in April of this year. Um, so there's that. Economically, it's the poorest countries in the world um, and very high maternal child um, uh, more, uh, mortality rate and um, Rough, nearly 50% of the country is designated to be impoverished, very high food insecurity right now. Um, and, but Mali's always been poor, right? So that's not, the, that's not the reason where we are at this particular moment. It's sort of the confluence of the poverty, um, rising youth population that doesn't have economic outlets. Um, there's no jobs to be had. Um, and so all of this frustration is coming together now to basically create an incredibly fragile system, uh, political system. And, and until there's real economic development, um, I fear that, you know, this, this is a really difficult place for Mali to move forward from. And I, I think that point you made about the fact that it's got really high mortality rates among the newborn and a youth population. I mean, some of the forecasts that I've seen um, suggest that its population will probably double in 10, 15 years. And I think its capital city is one of the fastest growing cities in Africa. Um, but one particular area of it, obviously, which and, and really matters to us in terms of military operations and thinking about insecurity in the country is the northern bit of the country. And, and the question of the Tuareg uprising, possibility of a deal in 2015 that really didn't necessarily follow up. Um, where things are more specifically in the north and what is the background to um, this content? Uh, with Tuaregs have the rest of the country and the structures? Absolutely. So I think what I would say is, first of all, there have been ongoing conflicts since the time of independence between the Tuareg and the South. So this is not new. There have been multiple attempts to sort of quell the frustrations of the Tuareg, um, most notably in the 1990s. Um, there were promises of integration into the army. There was promises of political uh, <laughs> decentralization. There were promises of increased money. I mean, things as simple as roads. They wanted actual roads to go to Timbuktu and, and from Gao to Timbuktu, these, these various places that were, there are no paved roads. And there's this sort of call for, hey, pay attention to the North as well. We are part of Mali. Um, and so I think part of the reason that it became such an important issue in 2011 was that after Gaddafi's um, regime collapsed, many Tuareg came back from Libya who had been fighting in Gaddafi's army and they come down and they're fully armed, right? And they are now see themselves to be in a place to make a push for a separatist state in the north, a state called Azawad. So, this is in part because they felt as though the agreements that had been made had never been implemented. And so now they had the arms to make their, their case, right? The, to actually push for a separate state. Um, and in terms of um, 
the 2015 accord that you just mentioned. Again, it's another attempt to have some kind of peace accord, um, but that really is seen as not having been an inclusive agreement. And so none of these problems have been solved. Um, so the point about Tuareg is, uh, you know, they've never been uh, integrated into the state and and now there are people who will disagree with that there are people who will say oh they've been complaining about that forever there were projects focused on the north there was all kinds of money flowing to the north and i can give one example of a project that president toure really promoted um as his signature northern project right to help development in the north it was focused on security. It was focused on beefing up security for villages so that people living in the North who were not Tuareg could protect themselves. It wasn't about building development and infrastructure in the North. And then to tie into that, there was um, lots of corruption and money disappearing. And so finally things just snapped. <laughs> but the point is that it's, it's been going on for a very long time. Um, an interesting point which you alluded in, in your answer um, while positioning this question of the Tariq grievances against the rest of the country as historic roots is the Libya side of it, which automatically kind of signals to how their grievances, very localized, real life issues like participation in political structures, economic opportunities, good services, have now had an additional layer of militants coming down from Libya looking for the next battle, um, traffic routes for arms control and narcotics and irregular migration, as well as worrying reports of Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb and ISIS now as a whole additional layer in West Africa. How has this international networks and militants and um, actors impacted the local developments, positively or negatively? I mean, some groups did have back down. They don't necessarily want to go towards the direction of a caliphate being created. They want to have a separate secular vision, but others have seem to be co-opted into much more internationalized um, conflict layers. Yeah, so that's a very good question. And you're absolutely right that while there's historic roots, now there's also increasing international actors involved. So um, the issue of trafficking through the Sahel, that's been going on for some time, right? I mean, we can go all the way back to Trans-Sahara trade. So those are not new routes. They just have been, um, they were sort of um, kicked up and you've got more arms now flowing along, along those, those routes. Um, and there's of course money to be had in trafficking, drug trafficking, human trafficking, even trafficking of food goods between Algeria and Mali, right? That um, food would come from the north, in, or from, from Algeria, right, down into Mali. Um, so it wasn't just you know, illicit tra trafficking in humans and drugs, etc. Um, so Al Qaeda got involved in in this because this is um, there's there's a lot of money to be made. Um, there are those who argue that the Malian government, um, and I would tend to agree, sort of turned a blind eye to a lot of the trafficking that was taking place um, because uh, you know there were there were networks there that they were affiliated with certain certain members. Um, and of the government. And so um, Al-Qaeda came in and sort of picked up on what local actors 
we're doing, right? I, you pointed to, you mentioned um, the, the local groups that were involved. So I can give the example of Ia Dagali, who was, um, had a local group and Sardine that um, joined forces with Al-Qaeda to basically push the, the secular Tuareg separatists aside. And they really overpowered the separatist movement. Um, and it became much more of a, well, maybe we can claim this territory as a stronghold for Al-Qaeda, establish a caliphate, and continue this trafficking, which is incredibly profitable, right? They're doing that um, Al-Qaeda um, made multiple alliances in the region with local groups. Um, and now you have the Islamic State, which has done the same thing um, and has done this, has pushed into central Mali as well. So um, for, I think another point that I would like to add about where Al-Qaeda and Islamic State are operating here is that they understand that if you can fuel ethnic tension, which is what they've started to do in central Mali, um, you kind of create anger and frustration in a way that you can um, recruit people to your side, right? Because they can, they can say, oh, the Malian government is supporting Dogon self-protection um, militias, and therefore we Fulani need to fight against that. And well, some of these Al-Qaeda groups are associated with the Fulani, so we're youth that have nothing else to do are gonna join these groups, right? And so the, the, it creates a, um, a vacuum, and it's not a vacuum, it creates a space in which Al-Qaeda Islamic State can re recruit um, and, and promoting or pushing on the button of ethnic conflict helps fuel that whole crisis that allows for more recruits. Hmm. So, and, and the state is losing control of territory. That's another really important thing to add is that the state um, civil servants are being targeted, development workers are being targeted. And as we all know, military forces are being targeted um, in an effort to just keep the place destabilized because that works for Al-Qaeda and, and ISIS, um, Islamic State. Really worrying and, and to see how actually strategic their own thinking is to keep things broken, it helps them. Um, one, international, one aspect of the internationalization, or if you like, of the local grievances in Mali is obviously the UN participation, the French participation, the G5 countries in the region. Um, UN has named it as the most fatal, dangerous um, mission it has at the moment. It's also one of the most complicated peacekeeping missions ever. So we have an integrated multidimensional UN peacekeeping mission on one hand. We have a French-led military operation on the other hand, which UK is supporting and contributing in both counts. And we have an initiative of G5 countries in the region also supporting and working on things. It's a truly complex um, kind of external stimuli and support to the country and the issues. Um, how have these actors engaged with these complex issues of the North, of history, political processes, grievances? What have you brought, what were the successes or shortcomings thus far? 
So I think the, the most important factor here is coordination and, and um, a focused, uh, you know, honestly, not only on the security focus, um, it, there does have to be a broader participation in terms of, again, infrastructure and economic um, support. And I know that the Sahel Alliance, which is a European initiative, has, has, has done a lot of that. Um, but going back to thinking about France and the UN and the G5, um, the creation of the G5 is a really good idea um, because, of course, we like to think that the regional militaries can handle um, their situation on their own. The reality is um, they have not been able to do so because of lack of training, et cetera. Um, they're also, you know, the French were welcomed with waving flags when they arrived in 2013 to push the terrorists that were moving south, to push these um, uh, extremists back. And, and Malians were enthusiastic about that, right? Um, well, their welcome's worn a little thin, and there are people who feel as though the ongoing international security forces are fueling the insecurity, right? They're, they're, uh, they're not helping the country move forward. That's a typical Malian perspective um, from the population. So that being said, um, it's kind of a catch-22, right? The G5 can't handle it, and nobody really wants the Europeans on the ground. <laughs> so where do you, you know, how does that meet? Um, for the UN, um, again, as we know, those, those um, UN bases have been targeted. Um, they are targeted regularly. There's IEDs, you know, regularly now in, in the North. Um, so it remains an incredibly insecure space. Um, I think to further answer your question about, you know, what role can these, these um, uh, actors play is not just the security role, but how can they help um, the overall economic and development uh, scenario, right? I mean, what, and of course, those things are not disconnected. You know, if you, how can you have elections? The elections are a very good example. You can't hold elections if nobody can get to the polls because the polls are unsafe, right? So you, you still have to have that part piece of it. Yeah. Um, and so I do, you know, probably the best bet is to focus on getting the G5 really up and running and functioning in a way that they are the ones who are really, you know, holding it together along with the UN. Um, and then trying to support, there's, we haven't touched on the, the human displacement, yeah. but right? I mean, there's internally displaced Malians and there are refugees. And now Burkina Faso is increasingly attacked and there's more refugees and displaced peoples from Burkina. Um, and so, you know, that puts real um, pressure on everybody in terms of the economic situation, right? Right. I mean, you've, you've got people moving into Bamako and other, other cities, right, trying to, to make things ends meet. And that's, that's difficult. Yeah. Um, 
one final question from me um, is bringing, making it more personal to the people who will be deployed there, right? From UK, from Europe, etc. What are some of the things they should personally be aware of or pay attention to? Obviously, we made the case for the importance of understanding of the country, its history, and the mixed receptiveness, and the need for us to think beyond security as a rigid kind of a heart security question of the Islamists and the jihadists or, or the ethnic separatists to a human security perspective of government, economic opportunities, IDPs. But what are some of the things they should be sensitive about, they should be aware of and thinking about as they are ready to be deployed to Mali? I think um, one of the important things to say is that, uh, you know, they'll hear a lot of stories, they'll get there, and they'll hear lots of people trying to convince them that, no, you don't understand, this is actually the way that things are, right? And I mean, you know, these personnel are certainly aware of, of those dangers, right? Of um, uh, everybody has their own perspective. Um, in Mali, I think it's, you know, it's to the extreme to the point that um, let's just take the the label terrorist, right? I mean, people are being labeled as terrorists and bad guys um, who, you know, how do we know, right? How do we know that's not just somebody somebody doesn't um, agree with, right? As opposed to somebody who's actively allied with an organization that is actively planning maneuvers, et cetera. Um, we see this across West Africa where um, militaries go in, Nigeria, for instance, uh, or in Mali, they go in and they just clean up in a place that they've heard there may be some folks who might be affiliated, right? That's the fastest way to fuel this crisis, even, you know, add, add a, what, fuel to the fire. Um, and so I think to understand that eth ethnic groups in Mali have actually, you know, managed to get along. There's some other story that's, that's being pushed into the scenario, right, to, to make things unstable. Um, and in terms of Islam, Mali, you know, I've spent, I spent a long time living in Mali and many years studying Mali. Um, Islam in Mali has always been extremely peaceful for the most part and, and diverse, right? Um, but it's, it's um, you know, and Malians themselves will watch atrocities taking place and say, that's not Mali. That's not what we know, right? That's not our religion. That's not. And so I think to be really wary of the stories that are being presented, right, to the personnel for other people's own advantage is, is one of the most critical things. Um, and Mali, you know, Mali may be poor. Um, it's extremely poor, uh, but it hasn't always been in crisis. And the country is truly in crisis. And Malians would really like to get back to life as they know, right? I mean, sustainable farming is the most, I think 80% of the economy is built on sustainable farming, agriculture and sustainable farming, right? You displace people, they can't even do that. They can't, right? They can't get access to food. Um, 
So I don't know. I think it's, it is about underscoring the local history, the local actors involved um, who, are, who are operating in ways for their own advantage and to just be attuned to the multiple layers of the story. Um, uh, in the country is the best advice I can give. Question, <laughs> such a relevant and important advice. And thank you so much for your time. Um, and the good news is that we have a paper written by you to unpack some of these things forward. And we're going to release that shortly as well. And thank you so much for um, all of this. And, and thanks to everybody who um, joined us today in this latest discussion of Chester Takeaway series. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.